I'm Kaitel. And I'm Joe. And we're the United Mates. Back in our school days, a shared passion for football brought us together as best friends. Today, we're separated by an ocean. I live in our hometown, London. And these days, I live in LA. But we still enjoy nothing more than chatting about the beautiful game. So we started a podcast. Join us. A few more old mates from school here and there. And new friends too from the world of professional football and beyond. This is the United Mates Football Podcast. Hello, hello, welcome and welcome back to the United Mates Football Podcast. Today I am joined by a regular contributor to the pod, my old friend Yanni. And we do also have a special guest on the call as well. He's a GP with a special interest in sports medicine. And so we're especially interested in hearing his story as we've spoken to players, coaches, agents and player care specialists from the world of football, but never a medical professional until now. Our guest is the team doctor at Borehamwood Football Club position he's held with the non-league side for quite a while now and more recently he's taken a role at championship side Luton Town as the match day doctor so if you end up taking a spill or falling ill at Kenilworth Road you'll have this man to thank for saving the day we welcome Mark Benton to the United Mates football podcast Mark thanks for being our guest and how are you doing today no problem uh yeah good hotel thanks very much for having me on yeah we're very much looking forward to getting into a conversation like I was saying that we haven't really typically been able to have an expert opinion on until now Yoni, always great to have you on the podcast how have you been uh very good thanks kai great to be great to be back um just sort of managing lockdown still going on here in the uk um but no very, very nice to be here um and before we get started as always we've got a quick icebreaker for you mark um and as you are a club doctor at both luton town and boreham road um, today's icebreaker is about our favourite fictional doctors, doctors from fiction, books, TV, any anywhere really. Um, I'll start mine with Doctor Doolittle, but specifically the Eddie Murphy version as the one that comes to mind. Um, that was the film I think came out in around 2003 as a kid, some sometime around then. Doctor Doolittle, and I just remember it being a fun film. And Eddie Murphy, um, I enjoy in most of the things he's done so far. Um, how about you, Mark? Ooh, tough one. So many good ones. Uh, I think I think all medics kind of love House. I think we all love House. Uh, I I probably have a bit of a soft spot from Doctor Cox for Doctor Cox from uh, Scrubs. Um, and I I got it a lot in medical school. My kind of namesake, Doctor Benton from uh, ER. Always a always a good throwback. I think I'll jump in, I guess. You kind of stole House from, from under my feet. I was going to definitely use, use Gregory <laughs> House um, as, as my favourite doctor. So maybe I'll go with, um, oh, it's quite tricky. I'm thinking of, can I only think of Dr. Frankenstein? <laughs> I don't even think I've read the book. <laughs> so a little curveball, I guess, an homage, was it Mary Shelley? Um, yeah, Frankenstein, I'll, I'll go with that. But now that we've kind of figured out some, some doctors that we're, we're into from works of fiction, let's move on to some, some football and Mark, taking things back to your childhood, actually, all the way back, what are the significant early memories that you have of either playing or watching football? And obviously, you're a, a Manchester United fan. That's something that I didn't mention in the, in the intro. What was it like supporting them back in the day compared to these days? Yeah, well, 
really great back then. Um, luckily, I kind of came into it when we uh, when we were winning everything, which was was great. My uh, my grandfather was a Man United fan. My dad was a Man United fan. I grew up in Salford, so we always had to be on the red side of Manchester. So we got I got a great run of a, a couple of uh, really almost three decades where we were actually really really successful. So that was uh, amazing. And now. <laughs> Now, not so much. Now the football cycle has come round again, and we're uh, we're kind of struggling in a, in relative terms. But uh, yeah, I had uh, really great football memories kind of growing up. Um, I think probably went to Old Trafford first time when I was maybe six or seven with my dad. I think it was uh, something like a, a Portsmouth FA Cup game, um, and then got to go to a few Champions League games. Kind of as I got older which was really great. Um, um, and, and obviously got to kind of watch some really amazing teams uh, through the years. Did you have a favourite player from that Manchester United era growing up? Ooh, I think, I think the kind of really, I guess the kind of class of 92, probably Skulls, I think really kind of complete midfield. Uh, I think one of those players, a player's player, um, and just just did the spectacular things and always always great to have in the team probably one of those players you kind of appreciate more after the fact as well um and then i was always a fan of andy cole always liked andy cole i always thought he got more didn't get enough credit i think through the years always a 20 goal a season goal scorer created you know kind of created a lot of his own chances with movement and uh i always 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 had a soft spot for andy cole thought he uh I thought he should have got more credit than he did, but there were so many great strikers back then that probably got he got overshadowed by uh, some of the other big names. The amount of times I got called skulls when I was a kid just because I <laughs> played a lot of football and because of my hair. And, you know, obviously back then it was meant to be an insult, but I, the ironic thing is, is, as you mentioned, he was a fantastic footballer. <laughs> so if anything, I should have taken it as a compliment. Not a bad comparison. Mm. Not a bad comparison at all. Yeah, I'm sure there are far, far worse players to be compared to. Um but professionally speaking, Mark, what came first? Is being a doctor, being a medicine, something you always knew you wanted to do? Or was it that you wanted to be involved in football and sports somehow and medicine was a sort of avenue towards that? Yeah, I think, I, think, um, I think the doctoring came first. I think probably when you start out, you're just kind of desperately trying to get through medical school and, and survive. And, and, then, and then you kind of have this big quandary about what you want to do what bit of what kind of field of medicine you want to go into so you kind of feel it out um I, I originally actually wanted to work in A&E because it's just kind of exciting dynamic uh changeable but it's it's very hard in terms of the hours and and kind of had a bit of foresight in terms of family and sports medicine isn't super or it wasn't then super developed in the UK so it's kind of a, it's a very kind of niche speciality so there were there wasn't many training posts so being a gp gives you a good general knowledge and a lot of the historically a lot of the doctors for teams like man united liverpool arsenal they're all gps um over the years so going into general practice with an eye on on developing an interest in sports medicine and and taking that route seemed the most logical way of doing it um and just being kind of healthy and active myself, I kind of felt it was just a really interesting area because it's not just kind of injuries, it's also, you know, kind of performance and uh, 
and, and kind of the science behind that. Well, sticking with, you'd mentioned a couple of Premier League teams' names and their, their doctors. Um, the path that you're on career-wise obviously has included plenty of sporting endeavors within medicine. So do you have an end goal of reaching a certain level or holding a position at a specific football club? Or do you ultimately see yourself taking a step back from sports when it comes to your profession long-term? I think I will always want to still work in sports. I think it's quite nice to have a nice spread of, of kind of experience. So I, I've kind of worked in football. I've done some um, athletics, worked in kind of event medicine, like Tough Mudders, um, done some kind of international events. So it's really nice to kind of spread around a bit. I think that, um, I think ha knowing quite a lot of the doctors that work at high-level high clubs can be very stressful. There can be a lot of, very, a lot of politics involved. Um, I would actually really like to work in maybe an academy at a good level, maybe a championship or even a, a kind of a Premier League academy working with younger athletes, um, you know, kind of coming up. I think once you get to that very, very kind of high level, you know, these multi, multi million pound players, you know, there's a lot of pressure on there to maybe they need to play. Maybe there's a, you know, kind of debate around the manager wants one thing doctors want the other thing and, and I think there's probably I think I probably prefer a kind of a step back level where you get to work really kind of more more in depth with younger players I think that'd be a great a great thing to do. That's a really interesting subject the sort of dynamic between medical staff and the playing staff and the coaching staff um, and that's something that we might get into more a little later um, but speaking of top clubs uh, now it's time for a little game and injuries isn't a fun subject necessarily or something to make light of but uh, we try our best to do that kind of thing here um, so as we've talked about some players do sort of get more injuries than others there are many injury prone players for whom it's more of a surprise if they're fit and involved in matchday squads uh, than when they're not so now for the game I've got a list of injury prone players who've played for various Premier League clubs um, and I'm going to ask you which injury-prone player you think has made more appearances compared to another such player for the same club Ooh. over the years. Um, <laughs> there's no pressure to get any of these right. When I was looking this up, I was it, the answer was always against my expectation anyway. Um, okay. But we'll start with uh, the latter noughties at West Ham United. Um, I'd like you to tell me which player you think made more appearances for West Ham, Dean Ashton or Kieran Dyer? So Dean Ashton had, a, had, had to uh, finish football for a particularly bad ankle injury. Um, but I would say he played a reasonable amount because he was kind of on the fringe of the England team um, when he kind of started to have problems with his injury. Dyer was at the back end of his career, I think, uh, I think going into West Ham. So I'm going to say... Dean Ashton played more games. I would also be tempted to say Dean Ashton. I think Dyer might even have broken his leg on his like West Ham debut or something random like that. And really, I don't think played very many times for them whatsoever. So I'm going to go with Dean Ashton. And you'd both be correct. Dean Ashton played 56 games for West Ham between 2006 and 2009. Kieran Dyer managed just 35 between 2007 and 2011. Um, and no prizes for telling me which of those scored more goals as well. <laughs> Dean Ashton, surely. 
yeah, Dean Ashton got 19 and Kieran Dye didn't score a single one. Um, now to a club close to your heart, Mark, uh, Manchester United, um, and two Owens involved in this one. Uh, who made more appearances for United, Owen Hargreaves or Michael Owen? Mm, okay, pressure's on. Um, so, Owen Hargreaves, bit of a sad, sad tale, I think. I think he, if he didn't have so many injury problems, I think he would have been a really good player for United. Um, so always one that I think, yeah, could have pushed us forward, I think, in that in that phase of football. Um, I'm going to say Michael Owen played more because I just think he didn't really have as that many injuries and he had a lot of sub-appearances. So I'm, and, and Hargreaves probably only played a season at that. So I'm going to say Michael Owen played more. I feel like Mark's giving me too many clues because his logic is so tight whenever he like is... is... <laughs> coming up with his re- reasons behind these but i would i would tend to agree obviously owen hargreaves had like probably half a knee between both of his legs yeah really really bad injuries and i think he even ended up playing for man city randomly after he left united which was bizarre you'd think he was sort of past it and then city signed him um yeah i think michael owen for the reasons that mark was mentioning did actually although i think he might only have been there for a year and hargreaves was probably there for a couple of years but yeah i'd say owen made more appearances you're both right with Michael Lowe, and he made 52 appearances between 2009 and 2012. Oh. Um, so actually coming up to three years, uh, and Owen Hargreaves managed 39 between 2007 and 2012, which is not as big a difference as I thought there would be between the two there. Um, but yeah, Hargreaves' time at United unfortunately curtailed, um, and I don't think he even made an appearance for any of the last two seasons he was there or something like that. Um, all right, Kai, so we'll start with you this time so you don't get any medical insight clues here. Um, and this is a club close to our heart, Arsenal. Who made more appearances between Abu Dhabi and Jack Wilshire? That is tough because I think off the top of my head, Diaby would have made it into the first team before Wilshire, just timing-wise, and obviously had that bad um, broken ankle or broken leg. It's just actually it's just kind of depressing thinking about both of these players right now. Um, I'm going to say that Abu Diaby made more appearances for Arsenal. Okay, and Mark, what's your guess there? Ooh, I'm I'm actually say Wilshire. Um, I think I think Wilshire played on and off, but he was there for a long time, and I think he had lots of niggly injuries. And I'm just thinking that he was hyped enough that people always thought he was going to really kind of be the next big thing. And I think he must've had to have played enough games for that to be the case. And I think Diaby had bad injuries and maybe really wasn't, it wasn't the level of Wilshire's, Wilshire's talent. So he probably, and that was a decent Arsenal side. So I'm going to say Wilshire made more appearances. Mark's got it again. Jack Wilshire made 197 appearances for Arsenal and Abu Dhabi only 180. It was close, though. Dhabi was there for nine years and Jack Wilshire for 10 in terms of between the first and last appearance. For this one, I will ask you for their goal scoring records as well. Who do you think scored more goals? Uh, We'll start with you again, Kai. It's got to be Dhabi. Okay, Mark, what's your guess? Yeah, I I think Dhabi as well. Up as well. Yeah, he did. He scored 19 and Jack Walsh scored 14. Um, now on to another big club and two more very talented players whose careers 
were at various points blessed by injuries. Um, I'm asking for Harry Kuehl and Daniel Sturridge, who made more appearances. Kai, we'll start with you again. I feel like that's very generous, putting like Harry Kuehl in like a Liverpool bracket with, with Sturridge. He, I feel like he hardly played, although he might have won the Champions League. So <sighs> it was a long time ago with Kuehl. It's a bit of a blurry memory, but I'll just go with his because I reckon Mark's going to say Sturridge and I need the points one way or another. So I'll, I'll either <laughs> broaden, broaden the gap or or I'll bri- or claw it back. This is a tough one, I think. Sturridge got, has got a bit of a reputation about, about really kind of lots of niggly injuries kept him out. But I don't think Kuehl was there for that long. Again, I, I just, I kind of think, I don't think Kuehl was there for that long. Um, I think it's going to be close. I, I think I'm probably going to go with Sturridge playing more games. So Kai Gamble hasn't paid off. Uh, Daniel Sturridge did make more appearances for Liverpool than Harry Kuehl with 160 compared to 138. Um, Sturridge was there slightly longer from 2013 to 2019, whereas Harry Kuehl was there from 2003 to 2008. but again, not too much to separate the two. Um, now onto a club that if Joe Alexander is listening, the other co-hosts of this podcast will have a lot of interest in. Um, who played more games for Spurs, Jermaine Genus or Tom Huddleston? I'll say they were both there exactly between 2005 and 2013. I'm going to say Huddleston. Uh, Mark, you can go first on this one. Oh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> go on. So. Well, um, I think again. I think I would probably say. I, I think I would say. I would have said Huddleston. Um, Genus again, kind of. I think peaked at Newcastle and then went to Spurs. But I, again, I think he had his. He, I think he had most of his injury problems at Spurs. I think Huddleston again. You know, it was an in and out Spurs team. Went. To, I think he went to Hull at some mm-hmm. stage. Um, but I. I think. I think Huddleston probably just pip genus i think because of the injury problems i think he did just pip genus 209 appearances to genus's 202 um there really wasn't much to separate them at all um mark's got a hundred percent record so far so i feel like if you do one more slightly more obscure one then maybe maybe <laughs> um kai can come back in this um so you have one more and it's stoke city that we go to next who played more games for them, Ibrahim Afalai or Stephen Ireland? Oh, this is this is going to be. A, I, have, I have very. I have no inside knowledge about these two. This is going to be a. Um, this is going to be a complete guess. So, I would say Afalai played more games. I've got nothing to lose, so I'll I'll go with Stephen Ireland, who apparently I think at one point was training to be an MMA fighter or at least doing MMA fighting training to like stay fit for football. And then there's like a weird story about his eligibility for Ireland or England, I think. Quite an odd guy, Stephen Ireland. Quite a talent as well. You'd think if Affleck could play for Stoke and I think he joined them from Barcelona, then probably Ireland could have played for Barcelona if they were going to have Affleck. <laughs> yeah, I'll go with Stephen Ireland. Yeah, that's a transfer that unfortunately hasn't yet come to pass. Uh, uh, Kai, you are right. Stephen Ireland oh. played 70 times for Stoke. Ibrahim Afalai, 55. Um, in that weird summer where they signed him and Shakiri, maybe just after getting Bojan in, and it looked like things were changing. And then two years later, they were relegated. Um, but 
Mark has sort of trounced you there. I can't remember the scores exactly. Um, but, you know, he is, he is the expert, um, which brings us on to our next section. Uh, Mark, you said before we started uh, this episode that you just come from um, a Boreham Riz game, draw with um, Torquay. And as you said, there are a range of areas that you worked in, um, different international tournaments, basketball tournaments, Tough Mudder, different sports and events um and Bournemouth is now one of the ways that you uh, are professionally active and something I'd like to know more about is what it's like to be the team doctor at a club further down the pyramid what's it's like to have maybe greater responsibilities with presumably fewer resources than you'd get mm-hmm. at other professional clubs um and on top of that the responsibilities that go beyond the first team for example if there is a match day and fans are in stadium in the stadium, would you also be responsible for their physical security if something did happen? Yeah, so I mean, it's a really interesting question, I think. Um, I think working down, further down the kind of football pyramid, I guess you you do have a, a kind of a greater level of responsibility. You have, there's, you know, there's less, you know, there's only generally one doctor, one physio, whereas kind of higher up championship, you may have two or three physios, you may have a team of doctors, so quite often, a club like Spurs will have four um, doctors that will rotate between the first team and the kind of the, the junior teams um, because there's more requirements for cover at that level. Um, you don't have all the kind of bells and whistles equipment. Um, you know, you have, you know, the safe, safe stuff available. You know, you kind of defibrillators and oxygen, but uh, you may not have some of the kind of fancy rehab stuff that the big boys have got. Um I think you try and do the best with what you can. Um, but I think it's almost a little bit more intimate, though, with the uh, with the lower league sides. You know, the club feels a bit more like you know everybody. You know, you know all the kind of kit staff, the ground staff. You know, you, you kind of seeing them week in, week out. Um, and everyone knows you. And, and, you know, you become kind of part of the furniture. So I think that is that is a really nice aspect to it. Um, but yes, in, uh, so in the UK, there are certain requirements for crowd doctors, depending on the size of the crowd. So if you have a crowd over 2000, you need a doctor um, and you need first aider for every thousand uh, spectators. Unfortunately, at Bournemouth, we don't tend to get up to 2000 very often, which means that although my role technically isn't as crowd cover we have first aiders but obviously if there is something that happens that requires medical attention I have gone and you know gone and and helped out and there's been you know a couple of occasions through the years where there have actually been you know quite severe injuries in in um, spectators visiting fans um once I had a significant head injury on the five-a-side pitch that adjoins the Forum Wood Stadium, so I had to kind of rush out mid-game and, and and help out with that. So, yeah, it does does mean your responsibilities are widened a little bit um, at that level. Saying that, though, I've had to deal with, um, I think I had a spectator who was a um, one of the ground staff at an FA Cup tie um, who had an epileptic fit uh, to go and uh, help out with that as well. So you do sometimes get pulled off the sidelines for uh, for things that aren't going on in the match. Interesting to hear, I guess, like one thing, having the knowledge 
and knowing, you know, in theory what to do. And then it's another thing in practice, seeing someone unconscious in front of you and actually dealing with it, you know, making the split second decision to follow through on all your training. So better you than, than me. That's what I'll say. For sure. <laughs> better than you than me for everyone in that situation, realistically. Um, but onto some other sporting endeavors that you've been working as a doctor for. You mentioned and Yanni mentioned as well, um, things like Maccabi games, Tough Mudder, uh, basketball tournaments. So how, if at all, do the logistics of your job change between various sports and events? So, I mean, they're all really different, I think. Um, the Tough Mudders are, I mean, it's, uh, it's like a major, major event. I think, you know, the logistics of it, um, and all credit to the, the kind of head, head medical and the organisers there, they do an amazing job. And just to have all those people, you know, on standby ready, they have a full kind of medical tents with all the gear, you know, you're, you're essentially driving around on golf buggies, picking up wounded people um, with some really significant problems. Um, and then the challenges of not, not really annoying them by uh, driving over the bumpy bits on the golf buggy when they're, when they're rolling around with a broken leg in the back seat. Um, so those, those are really interesting because I think you, you probably have all the events I've done. I would say those are where you're going to get the most serious injuries. Um, just because the volume of people and type of things that are going on, um, but those are those are kind of really really interesting. But you're all, you're a bit of a cog in a wheel there. With those kind of events you have, you know, maybe a dozen doctors, you have ambulance crew, you have first aiders, you have you know stewards that are helping out. So there you're a bit of a cog in a wheel, um, and so it's more you're just allowed to do the medical stuff and you've got all the kit. So that's whereas something like the Maccabi Games, it's kind of a big. Um, it's a big planning event. So you've got to, that works from before you travel to making sure you've got all the stuff available, making sure you've screened all the, all the athletes going. I think it was almost 400 people. You've got to make sure that you've got connections abroad where you're going to. You've got to make sure that you've got, you know, access to, you know, medical services there. And you've got to make sure that, um, especially in an event like that, where you've got, kind of adults and juniors you're kind of managing you've got to manage the adults you've got to manage the juniors you've got to manage the juniors parents so it's um can be a different a different type of challenge where it's probably more of a managerial role than so much of a clinical role i think there um and then something like the you know basketball tournaments that i look after which is the um kind of George Goldstone three-on-three tournaments which is a charity tournament that occurs every year um that's Again, it's kind of scoping out what's what's available at the event. Again, kind of kit, the athletes involved. And that's kind of more of a, an independent thing. That's just me and the organizers sorting it out. So um, I haven't got so much of a team behind me there. So that's, again, a different type of challenge. Smaller event, but more independent. So um, again, a bit more responsibility. So um, it does really, really kind of vary which is why i like to do all those different different things because it gives you different challenges and then just quickly have you experienced between football basketball i guess um from tough mudder it'd be like endurance and and running um between all these different types of athletes have you found any of them to take sports yeah sports medicine and preparation and preventative care and treatment more seriously than others and on top of that be appreciative of yeah kind of the help that you're providing i think you get a big, big kind of 
variation. I think rugby players are really tend to be a bit more into the kind of sports science. I think, you know, rugby players will have their diets, really pat, they'll have, um, you know, they'll, they'll have all their kind of training really down. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's really key for them in terms of that uh, kind of sports science. Footballers, not so much. I mean, we do get a few, um, a few footballers where their diet is basically Nando's pre-match um, and post-match and all through the week leading up to the match. Um, so, yeah, probably the football side. And it, it's interesting, though, because you see probably the younger players are like, turn up, play, good to go. Whatever happens in between happens. And, you know, as long as they, they, they're out on the pitch on match day, it's fine. As you, as you get some of the more experienced players, they're a bit more into it. They know their bodies. They're a bit more into taking care of themselves. They're really looking at the longevity of their careers. So I think football, you probably get a bigger, a bigger variation, um, but probably predominantly on the uh, not so great side, I think. Um, whereas the, the rugby players tend to take it a bit more bit more seriously they'll they'll tend to be a bit more uh, on point with uh, with all their uh, sports science it is reassuring in a way to know that footballers even professional athletes um kind of divert to these i guess stereotypical diets that we'd all like to believe we could have both you know the <laughs> sportsman's lifestyle and also eating what we want in that way but but as well as kind of managing events and being present at different uh, different sporting occasions you've been present within certainly at least one club as they've transitioned from a league one team to a championship team with Luton Town has promotion changed anything in terms of your role or the environment that you're working in or the expectations of you or the staff more widely as a whole um, I think Luton's a very professional club and I think that I think going to the championship, I think they've done everything right. I think the from a medical side of view, their medical team and their their kind of sports scientists, their physios, their sports therapists are really great. And I think they, you know, I think they've got a great system in place. And I think that the guys there um, are very kind of knowledgeable and aware of what was required to kind of step up. And I think they, I think they've done that really well. Um, and I think that's, why they're obviously you know obviously just about stayed up last season and now they're doing better this season um but i think that they've really embraced kind of what it what it means because there is a big step up between the leagues i think in terms of um the expectations of the players coming in in terms of the pressures of making sure those players are fit and ready to go and the the, the kind of fine margins around um you know, promotion, relegation, um, and clubs like Luton, you know, coming up, there's that pressure to that then stay up. Um, whereas maybe, you know, mid-table store teams that are just constantly kind of in that, that middle of the pack com and comfortably, they haven't maybe got as much pressure there and they can kind of coast a little bit. So um, I do think they've, um, I think they've really kind of uh, done well to deal with promotion and, and, and keep pushing forward. Definitely. Um, I suppose when that, when that pressure does exist and there's a pressure on results and a pressure on sort of uh, keeping your best players fit, but also having them in the team so they're able to contribute, how much power does a player or a manager um, or the medical staff have when it comes to managing players' fitness? If a player go, get, goes down injured, who has the 
sort of primary decision power and whether they continue playing or if a player's injured and coming back to fitness, who is able to really firmly give them the all clear to play a game of football? And sort of, if it is the player, how much can you trust them to be making the right decision for themselves? Um, you know, in, incorporating all of the advice they might be getting from you and other members of staff. I think, Yoni, it's, uh, it's a really interesting dynamic and probably one of the most interesting aspects I've found since working in football that you've got to really know the players well and their mentality. You'll have some players that will play with a broken leg. They'll be like raring to go and there'll be some players that have got little tweaks, little bit sore, and they just won't want to step foot on the pitch. And I think you'll, the players will know that, the manager will know that, and the medical staff will know that. So there'll often be conversations about the medical staff feel the players fit, the manager maybe wants to play him. Maybe the player doesn't feel it's correct. Sometimes you get it the other way. Sometimes the medical staff are saying, actually, they're not quite ready. And the player and the manager take that decision that they want to play. You know, Maybe it's a, a cup tie or an important game towards the end of the season. Um, but I think that nowadays, I think the player has a probably a much bigger say than maybe... Uh, back in the day, I think players are much more aware of their uh, vulnerability in terms of kind of significant injuries. And I think that it's very hard if a player is of a mindset that they're, they're not quite ready yet. It's very hard to kind of push them on the pitch. I mean, some managers will be able to do it. Sometimes as a medical staff, if we feel it's safe, we'll be able to, uh, you know, encourage them to and reassure them. Um, but it's definitely... A, a kind of complex dynamic between the three the three groups to kind of see if we can you know get someone you know and 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 then it may be a compromise in terms of maybe they're going to play 70 minutes or maybe they're going to come on as a sub and that might be acceptable to all parties but it's never i think well not never but it's 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 i think sometimes it's it's not always a straightforward conversation it's um interesting you know the pressure kind of on the three different parties in that situation uh, you as a medical professional kind of you know upholding that ethical maybe moral standard the manager who needs a result the player who doesn't want to lose his place in the team so you can kind of understand from all three um sides of things why maybe the most professional or the 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 safest option isn't isn't taken as option as often as it should maybe uh, or could but i want to focus a bit more on sports medicine exclusively just as a as a practice and its strengths and weaknesses and overall kind of its influence on football so in particular i want to start with something that's kind of a newer practice relatively speaking and we're going to be focusing on concussions to start with so the fa and the premier league have implemented a new system of concussion substitutions in the interest of player safety of course so mark just how seriously do concussions in sports need to be taken and if you are particularly aware of this new protocol what do you make of the new concussion substitutions i think it was i think from a med from a doctor's point of view i think a lot of us felt it was probably a long time coming i think um and rightly so i think concussions have been overlooked over kind of many many years and i think that um a lot of the data we're seeing now is really backing up that they needed to take, be taken more seriously in the past. Um, I think 
recognizing them and uh, obviously kind of intervening um, appropriately. Um, mm-hmm. And I think we're seeing obviously in other sports, some of the long-term consequences like in, in kind of NFL and, you know, rugby where obviously head injuries are a lot more common. So you've got the data volume there to go, okay, well, some of these players are having problems later in life. Um, and we need to look at this in, in kind of other sports um, like football and how we can use that. And, and sometimes, unfortunately, football can be a little bit slow on the uptake in the sports science fields compared to maybe some of the other sports. So we are generally playing a bit of catch up. Um, but I think it, it, it's an issue that really, really needed to be looked at and needed to be reviewed. And I, I think medically, the, the kind of, you know, it's quite a small community in, in the sports medicine field in the UK. Um, I think a lot of us kind of were wondering why it wasn't really taken more seriously and, and, and addressed sooner. Um, when we've got the technology, when if we're, especially nowadays when we're slowing down the game with the AR and these type of, of kind of video technologies, what is the harm in, in doing concussion substitutions? You know, rugby had been doing it for years. Um, so, you know, we didn't, we didn't think there was any downside really um, because player safety has to be paramount. Um, and, you know, we can now watch replays instantly to check concussions. We've got, you know, validated tools now to assess concussion on the sidelines. So it doesn't make sense really not to have that option to have a, a concussion substitution protocol in place. Jumping back to something that Yoni was asking about, kind of the decision-making power behind taking a player off or playing a player in the first place, but then still sticking with concussions. This protocol's here and it grants teams an additional potential two extra substitutions in the case of concussions. Given something that we've kind of alluded to with, you know, maybe people not always um, making decisions from, from the right place. And uh, on top of that, kind of the pressure at the top end of things and how teams are constantly trying to gain an advantage over each other. You know, you look at how much diving goes on week in, week out. You look back to a couple seasons back when Marcelo Bielsa sent some spies to spy on Frank Lampard's Derby team in like the build up to a game. Can we trust these officials or, or club officials really? Cause it's, it's kind of down to the clubs themselves. Can we trust them to make the right decisions with this substitution rule? You could in theory see players pretending to be concussed to gain their club an extra, an extra substitution. Is that something that within your experience of football, you could actually see someone being devious enough to do? Uh, I could happen. It definitely could happen. I think, I think it's a possibility. I think the one thing I would say is though, that everything's under such a microscope now that everything's kind of, you know, being got a million cameras on it. You've got social media. And I I think you've got a lot of armchair doctors as well, probably looking at things and and being able to comment about whether something looks like a, a true concussion. Now I'm not saying it's not, you couldn't fake a concussion, but what you've also got to remember is that if someone's playing that they're concussed, there is then a protocol of timeout afterwards that they have to be unavailable for a match for a period of, of time. So if potentially you've got a very kind of congested schedule at the end of a, a season, if someone's then faking a concussion and, you know, I, I can't see any of my medical colleagues 
going along with it. I think if they, you know, I, I think maybe the managers may say go for it, but I can't see it. You know, a lot of us, are, you know, we're not going to be able to kind of live with that really. But I think it's a risk if you've got, let's say, Champions League or you've got a league game, you know, you've got like a, a Saturday, Wednesday, then they're not going to be able to play on the, the Wednesday if they're being removed from a, for a concussion. So it's a big risk I think they're taking. And I think, I think people will be looking out for it. But I think if you look at the downside of simulation and trying to get an advantage versus the benefit of protecting players' health with... Um, with concussion substitutions and better concussion protocols, I think you're going to have to accept that there might be a few dodgy decisions being made as long as it protects the majority. Yeah, I, I suppose something we've been seeing recently on that, not in terms of the abuse of the concussion rule, but it seems like now players know that the ball will be kicked out if they have an injury, rightly so. Um, you see a lot more of players just uh, feigning a head injury where there may not have been actual contacts. Um, and I suppose as long as it remains a sort of simulation thing on the pitch, then then that's okay. And as long as it doesn't get into any kind of medical deviance beyond that, um, then 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 we're on solid ground there. Um, but but with with when it is serious, when it is potentially a life altering injury whether it's a concussion another type of head injury a seizure um or even sort of in the few tragic examples of heart attacks that we've seen with players um going down or a heart murmur issue or, or something along those lines um what 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 are your feelings as as a doctor as someone standing on the sidelines for these events of the game continuing at all both, both in terms of sort of the players welfare um and also the, I suppose, emotional impact on the team as a whole of seeing um, a teammate or friend go through some kind of uh, some kind of trauma, um, because that's always seemed something slightly off to me is how how players can be expected to continue playing when they've seen something potentially very affecting happen on that pitch. I think it's a tough one. I think it's a tough one. Um, I think in terms of something like maybe a serious limb injury, you know, fracture. Obviously it's distressing, but then you know that, you know, that the player's safe and they're otherwise okay. I think cardiac arrests are really tricky, I think. And I think that the welfare of the other players, I think, needs to take into account because you're seeing your teammates, you know, potentially, you know, die on the pitch. And and I would say it would be difficult for anybody to carry on kind of playing and, and giving kind of that kind of level of performance once they've kind of witnessed something like that. And I think it's, it would be absolutely understandable to then kind of call off the game. Um, I don't know whether that should be a decision that the teams should make. I don't know if that's a decision that should be, you know, written into the rules because it luckily it is a, an incredibly rare occurrence. Uh, and maybe just for those, you know, very, very few tragic uh, events that um, maybe it should be written in that then the game is automatically cancelled because it would take away any debate on that. Um, I don't know whether you give, give the teams the choice. And if one team says we don't want to carry on, then that's, that's it. And, and because that would make it kind of fairer. Um, but I can't really imagine what it would be like, you know, to see a teammate 
go through that um, and, you know, have to suffer through it. And then again, like a crowd having to witness that as well. Um, it may be that it should be automatic, that that game is then rescheduled. On those sorts of events, which may be triggered in some way by underlying issues that either haven't been detected or have been detected and are being managed. And as spectators, we have no idea about uh, the, the litany of medical issues that any professional sports players might have that, um, that obviously the, the people working with them have insight into. But do you think that there should be uh, a sort of standardized, well, that, that there may already be, um, but the standard of medical screening and tests that players go through when they join a club, for example, as far as I understand it, is at the discretion of the club whether they consider these potential issues to be, I, I suppose, inhibiting or inhibiting to the completion of a transfer of a player. And certain careers have gone in very different directions because one club has an, has an issue with a player's medical record or specific um, specific medical issue um, that another club has been fine with and gone on to sign the player. Should there be a kind of overall standardised medical process that says this player is fit to play for any club or not? Or should it be left to the discretion of the individual clubs, in your opinion? Um I mean, there is a, you know, in terms of cardiological screening, generally there is a kind of standardized protocol in terms of um, ECGs, uh, physical examinations, and uh, a lot of clubs will do more advanced cardiological testing, especially in the Premier League. Um, they will do um, a, lot, a lot of additional testing, um, kind of exercise ECGs uh, to look for kind of changes on exertion. Um, so there is a lot of that. It does fade out a little bit as you get down the tiers. Um, and there are, uh, in other countries like Italy, um, it's recommended that anybody who's going to participate in, in kind of regular sports does have an ECG, whereas that's not a, 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 uh, uh, a necessary uh, screening in the UK. Um, the evidence base around that does show that uh, it does reduce the the the, um, the incidence of sudden cardiac death um, it's a small number though um, it may be the volume of screening that's done in Italy um, but I think it's done probably quite a lot in the states um, I think that some of the populations in the the kind of states with kind of African-American populations in sports there's a higher risk of, of sudden cardiac death in, in those of African and Afro-Caribbean backgrounds. So tends to be a bit more incentive there for kind of screening. Um, I think it would be good if it came down the kind of lower tiers. And there are some charities in the UK that do, do, do offer cardiac screening free of charge to under 35s. Um, and so those are checked by kind of uh, people trained to look for congenital heart defects on, on ECG. Um, so that's a really great charity that's offering those services. But I do think, you know, it's a simple test. It's straightforward. The one downside we have to think about is that there is the potential risk of a false negative result. And what that means is you could have a player that is screened. Something gets picked up that may be not necessarily dangerous to them, but that could mean that maybe a club is potentially going to step away from having them on their books, especially maybe a very young player just starting out in their career and they're worried about what's going to be found and that could be their career over. 
Um, and some of these young players, that's all they, they all they know is it's football. You know, they may not have like a, a profession to fall back on. Um, and if they find something that maybe may never hurt them or affect them, and they they're going to make the decision about whether they want to play or not, uh, but it's taken out of their hands. So it's a difficult it's a, it's a difficult subject. Actually, one of our former guests, uh, Marvell Wynn, who was a U.S. international soccer player, I'll call it soccer, um, and an Olympian and uh, an MLS Cup winner, found out that he had a heart condition and took it, I think, upon his own his own decision to kind of retire from the game around the age of, of 30. So I think it's kind of that gray area of once you've got the information, what do you do with it? Do you mm. let the person live their life and live their dream and take a risk? Or do you kind of say better safe than sorry? And I guess it sounds like that still falls on the individuals to an extent. There's no rule saying, right, we found this. Sorry, you are banned from playing this sport, et cetera. So we'll see kind of the direction that these things move in. At the end of the day, people have to yeah, do what they feel is right. But one last sort of question on sports science for today. And it's something you, Mark, as well, were already kind of mentioning earlier. So the nature of science and research obviously means that, you know, in the world of medicine, things are constantly evolving and developing. And it seems like as as humans, we always look back at old practices and we can be critical, you know, of how much further we are ahead in the moment when it comes to the standard of treatment. So looking forward, Mark, maybe it's to do with concussions, maybe it's something else. When it comes to sports medicine in particular, do you personally have any specific fears about things that we may end up looking back on in years to come and realizing that, you know, we weren't handling them or accounting for them properly in the first place? I think, I mean, I think concussion's a big one. I think, I think the more and more data we have, I think the the better off we'll be able to kind of predict what's going to happen. But it's interesting in medicine because it might, it might even flip back the other way. You know, sometimes things look one way, and we think we've got all the information on it and we think we're making really robust protocols and sometimes it goes back the other way. I think there are a lot of things, you know, because sports medicine's a very, um, it's a very new speciality really. And I think that there's things that we probably have done a lot in the past, things like a lot of injections, you know, there's kind of, you know, to get players through games, um, kind of corticosteroid injections, um, you know, but now we're finding injections increase the risk or the rate of arthritic change in joints so we're moving a bit away from them but then there are novel therapies where we're injecting uh, platelet-rich plasma there's there's other you know kind of research on on kind of stem cell treatments and there's all these things that have only come about in, in recent years but they're all very new and there's not much around about them and unfortunately what tends to happen in sports is people grab onto the the new and shiny thing and it gets kind of tested in the field. And then sometimes it takes us a number of years to then work out that it didn't work in the end. I mean, that's something that happens a lot with medicine in general. We, uh, we find something that seems really cool and seems like it works, but we've only got a little bit of information on it. And we, we kind of go for it. And then 15 years later, we realize it didn't work at all. We just didn't know it at the time. And then it takes another 10 years to, to go out of fashion. So um, I think that as long as we stick with the evidence base, and as long as we try not to do harm in the first, the, first, the, the first take, I think that it's an exciting kind of field to be in. But I think that there's a lot of new things that we just need more information about. Um, and probably some old stuff like the injections where 
retrospectively probably they didn't they weren't so great and as long as we have that knowledge now and we kind of action it and we know that actually we need to make more informed decisions going forward i think i think we'll be all right let's hope so yeah it's the constantly changing scene i, I imagine with developments and not knowing exactly what all of these new exciting things whether they'll benefit the game or um whether it will be looked back upon as something that maybe it wasn't so productive um but just before we finish, to take it back to the more trivial topic of, of actual football um, and your views on Manchester United as they are at the moment, it's a little over two years into Solskjaer's reign um, as manager. Uh, what are your, I suppose, current, uh, your assessments of the current state of United? And um, do you think that Solskjaer can realistically take you to where you'd like the club to be again um i think he's done an all right job i think one of the things i would say that i'd give him credit for over the the three managers that came before him since ferguson is that the team looks like it's evolving i think it looks like it's going somewhere it's just stuttering a bit when it does it um i think his recruitment's been good um, I almost feel like he'd be a better director of football maybe sometimes than than the manager. Um, I don't know whether he's quite the person to, to you know, win us leagues and champions leagues. Um, but I'm willing to give him more time in the absence of, you know, other, any other great candidates. And I think he's, he's I think he has built a decent squad. I think there are holes in it. And I think, it's maybe not his fault. He's probably identified transfer targets and maybe the uh, the kind of powers that be behind the scenes haven't managed to recruit them. But I think the players he has brought in so far have generally been good. And that's probably more I can say for a lot of the other signings we've made over the last few years. Um, and we've had to obviously get rid of them and get them off the, the wage bill. And that's something, again, Solskjaer's done well. So I think he deserves credit. Um, I'm not sure really that without significant recruitment, you know, we'd be able to challenge City and Liverpool um, in the league. Um, but it's going to be hard to really kind of give him a lot of stick until he's really got, you know, until he says, well, this is my squad, it's complete and I've signed maybe a, a, another striker and a centre-half and a winger. Um, I think he's doing all right. But yeah, I, I'm, I think how he does this season i think if we progress then i think it'll look okay i think if we stagnate and seem to be not really pushing forward then i think then questions will be asked begrudgingly as an arsenal fan i'd have to yeah agree with you to an extent i think ole is doing a a decent job we'll let the donny van der beek signing slide i guess in terms of recruitment <laughs> uh not a bad player but a bit of a, a bit of a strange one i think actually that's about as much time as as we have. Um, so I want to say thanks to Yanni and then a very special thank you to our guest, Mark Benton. Mark, we hope you enjoyed yourself. Do you have any advice or words of wisdom for people out there who may be interested in doing what you do and getting into sports medicine? Um, I think it's, it's a small field and kind of, it's all about just putting yourself out there. If you've got an interest in it, if you've got some experience, I would say try and, you know, kind of, volunteer at kind of uh, Sunday league or lower league, try and, you know, build up some kind of pre-hospital experience, you know, do a bit of A&E, 
Um, and then just just put your name about, just kind of contact people, offer your services, do a bit of volunteering. Um, the great thing about the UK sports scene is there's loads of clubs out there. There's loads of, of, of football teams. There's loads, you know, and, and there's not that many sports doctors around. So there's always opportunities available. Well, you heard it here. It's kind of a, a, a small market to get into. So don't don't step on Mark's toes, but do put yourself <laughs> out there and yeah, find your way into the world of sports medicine at your local club or, or however it is. Um, thanks again, Mark, to our listeners. If you've enjoyed this, please do follow us on Spotify or wherever else you found this episode. The best way to keep up with everything that we have going on at the United Mates Football Podcast is to check us out on social media too. For Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, we are at United Mates FP. We're constantly posting new content and links to podcasts there, so make sure you give us a follow. And if you happen to feel like putting some faces to these voices... You can also find us on YouTube. Just search for United Mates Football Podcast. Until next time, everyone, take care of yourselves and take care of each other as well. Goodbye.